Welcome to Dayspring Fellowship. Are you ready for what God has for you today? Whether you are in the room live, watching online, or later on demand, I know one thing for sure. God wants to do something new in you. There's nothing more exciting than knowing that God is at work, even if we can't see what He's doing and have to wait a while to find out. He's always good, so our lives are safe and secure in His hands, no matter what that new thing is. I'm Chris Voigt, and I have the immense privilege of leading the team here at Dayspring. It certainly keeps me on my toes, because that team expends endless energy helping people grow. If you are visiting Dayspring today, we want you to know that you can come as you. We're just like you, regular people on a journey discovering what God has for us each day, and each day saying yes to becoming like Jesus, one step at a time. Which means that no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, this is a good place to figure out what your yes is today, and tomorrow, and the next day. Slowly becoming like Jesus. We haven't arrived yet, so we can be good company on the journey. Even if you aren't sure the Christian life is a journey you want to be on, this is a good place to ask questions as you look for answers. So welcome. You can learn more about us as a church by exploring our website at dsf.church, by checking out our Facebook page, or contacting us by phone or email. If you need help figuring out the next step to making Dayspring your home church, or if you just have questions, let us know. We'll help you find the answers. For today's service, you can find a discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. Now, let's join our service. Can you believe that we are this close to celebrating Christmas, celebrating the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? I mean, it seems like forever since we've been able to really get together or travel or have those extended family gatherings that are both a blessing and, well, a blessing. <laughs> My extended family, which gathers every year, has taken a three-year hiatus, you know, due to the whole COVID thing. And uh, I have quite a large family, and uh, my husband and I hosted 60 of our closest family members at our family Christmas party yesterday, um, hence the dark circles under my eyes today. I have a very close family, and I'm the youngest of six, and I remember when I was younger, when my parents were still married and all of us kids still lived at home, it was oh, a, a, an exciting time to prepare for Christmas. And part of the tradition when I was small was, of course, the nativity scene. Uh, my dad had made the barn part of the nativity, and my dad could make anything. So this was more like a craft project for him than a building project. And part of the fun was prepare, uh, preparing for Christmas was going out and finding the moss for the manger scene. Because I'm sure there's a lot of moss in Bethlehem <laughs> in the manger. Uh, anyway, it was, it was a fond memory that I have growing up uh, was the moss hunt. And so 
Every year we would go out and do that, and it, and it made the manger look nice. I mean, we always put it in the fireplace uh, with the moss around it. And of course, our scene had Mary and Joseph and a shepherd and a cow and a sheep and a donkey and an angel and three wise men carrying their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Anybody familiar? And a little manger. And of course the baby Jesus. And by baby, I think we would all agree uh, that we think of baby Jesus as an infant, uh, as a newborn, in fact, which he was since he was born in a manger, and this is the manger scene, but it's our little, is our little manger scene really accurate? I mean, actually, it isn't known how many wise men came to visit Jesus or when, and in fact, it's very likely that Jesus was a toddler when our three wise men brought him these precious gifts. Maybe not to a newborn. Scholars think that Jesus was somewhere uh, between one and two years of age by the time the wise men that we read about in the Bible arrived. They had been traveling for quite some time anticipating the visit to Jesus God had given them this bright star to guide the way. I mean, can you even fathom? No Google Maps. And I imagine their excitement. But I also imagine maybe a little bit of trepidation as their journey was almost waylaid, waylaid by King Herod who was jealous of the newborn child that he had heard about. And these particular wise men, the three we usually have in our manger scenes, brought some important gifts to the child king, Jesus. So let's get some context from Matthew chapter 2, and then we'll talk about these gifts. Chapter 2, verse 10, let's get some context here. When they saw the star, speaking of the wise men, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and bowed down and worshipped him. They opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So these wise men had been following a star and it stopped over the house where Jesus lived and overjoyed the magi or wise men, presented Jesus with their three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And last week, Chris talked about frankincense and how this symbolizes our great high priest. And on Christmas Eve, he'll, he will talk about gold. Today, we're looking at myrrh. And we're, you're going to learn more about myrrh than you ever thought you needed to know. So here's some fun facts for you. Myrrh is a gum-like substance that is retrieved by making an incision in a tree that is native to northeastern Africa. A cut in the bark is made and the, it allows the gum to flow out. And myrrh is bitter tasting, but agreeably aromatic. And it tastes bad, but it smells good. And many, many medicinal studies have been done with myrrh. It's thought to be an anti-inflammatory, to have wound healing properties, pain relief properties, and there are even studies of its use in cancer treatments. It's thought to be somewhat of, a, of an antibacterial. It's used today 
in mouthwash and toothpaste because of its anti-inflammatory properties. And there's a recent study from PubMed uh, Central that says burning frankincense and myrrh together can reduce airborne bacteria by 68%, thus cutting down on the spread of illness. But before you run out and start burning the stuff all over the house or using it as, as a topical treatment or even ingesting it, it can also be very toxic. Uh, some studies today consider it to be in the cannabis family, so you want to slow your roll on the myrrh usage. <laughs> I can see it now, church myrrh usage. <laughs> Basically, it was a spice used for embalming. It would both cut down on the bacteria of decomposition, and since it was agreeably aromatic, it also cut down on the odor of decay as well. It was very valuable. In the Gospel of Mark, we see that Jesus is offered myrrh mixed with gall or with wine to ease his discomfort as he's dying on the cross. However, Jesus refuses this mixture as he wanted to be fully present on the cross. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Now, each of the precious gifts that the Magi bring have special meaning. As we've learned last week, frankincense uh, represented Jesus as our high priest. Uh, this week, myrrh represents the suffering servant role of Jesus Christ. And it also gives a hint about the death and burial of Jesus. Uh, myrrh would have been used after Jesus gave his life to help prepare his body for burial. And this is why scholars believe that myrrh represents Jesus as our suffering servant, the Lamb of God whose purpose of life on earth was to die for the forgiveness of our sins. And today we're going to dive into a prophecy that was told by the prophet Isaiah some 700 years before the birth of Christ. Now this prophecy gives a detailed account of how and why we call Jesus the suffering servant. So let's start with the why. We begin in Isaiah, which is roughly the middle of your Bible. Uh, turn or navigate, or you can look at the screens, to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. So all of us like sheep. I mean, you've probably heard the common myth that sheep are dirty and dumb and we're like them, so we need a savior to come along and help us out because we're so dumb and we're so sinful that we can't find our own way. But I think that's a bit simplified. So to get a bit of clarification or maybe dive a little deeper here, Let's take another look at how we are like sheep. And in order to do that, we need to know a little bit about sheep. So here are some fun facts about sheep. You had no idea that you were going to start your journey of being a worthless fountain of knowledge today, did you? <laughs> Sorry, that's an inside joke from 
a previous message that I've done. So if you want to catch up with the rest of us, you can watch that one online. All right, so sheep have a strong desire to stick together. They can actually learn tasks quickly. Uh, they have different personalities. They can remember faces. They experience emotion. They wander in order to escape danger or to inspect interesting things. We'll call that distraction. They also wander because they weren't walking on a straight line or staying close together with the rest of the herd. They are followers. They tend to stay in a flock. Running is a, pro is a proven defense mechanism. They require strong guidance and direction, and without it, they get lost. So you can see we are really a lot like sheep, and in some ways, that's not a bad thing. But in others, well, let's unpack just a few of those a little bit. So... You can see on the screen that we've got some bullet points there. So first, sheep experience emotions. Some studies say that sheep can be emotional creatures, and we can too. Emotions in and of themselves are not a bad thing, but if we're emotionally unhealthy or emotionally immature and we are unable to have healthy relationships, and unwise choices and unhealthy relationships do not draw us closer to Jesus or closer to each other. So although we have emotions, we need to learn how to navigate them in a healthy way. Sheep wander, usually to escape danger or inspect interesting things. They also wander when they don't walk in a straight line. They get off the path, so to speak. They also wander away occasionally, failing to stay with their herd. We wander for the same reasons. We're enticed by sin. We want to take a closer look at it so we can, we just kind of wander over to see it, to touch it, to taste it. We wander away from our yes to God and over to the temptation that seems interesting. We wander when we walk off course, when our straight line following Jesus takes a bit of a turn or a curve off center. We wander when we decide that what we want is to do our own thing. We don't want to stay with the Jesus herd. We want to beat our own drum. Sheep are genuinely or generally followers, as are we. We all want to feel needed and we want to feel known, which can cause us to follow anyone or anything that makes us feel needed or known. Who are we following? Are we following Jesus or are we following something or someone else? And sheep run as a defense mechanism. Anyone? Anyone out there run from a healthy relationship or church or Jesus because your defenses are up? You either didn't want to be discovered or you didn't want to be hurt. Are you running still? Sheep require strong direction or they get lost. 
And I am guessing that when they are lost, they don't realize it, at least not at first. And sometimes, all too often, we decide that we know where we're going and we know how to get there. And we decide that we don't need direction from the Holy Spirit. And before we know it, we're asking ourselves, how did I get into this mess? And there's a term in the Bible that describes you and me prior to our decision to follow Jesus. It describes anyone today who has not yet decided to follow Jesus. And these individuals are called the lost, meaning that they have not found their way to Jesus. Therefore, they're still lost. And I think it also describes us when we have wandered so far from Jesus that no one would know that we'd ever made a decision to follow him. So that's why the reason that we need a suffering servant. It's because humanity rejects God and his ways. Humanity denies a need for him. They reject that in order to be near a holy God, there needs to be payment for our rejection. So let's call this rejection sin. Sin separates humanity from a holy God. But God desired a relationship with his creation so much that he made a way. And in the Old Testament, in order for Israel to maintain their position as God's chosen nation and to show himself to the world, there were guidelines and laws that had to be followed. But it was impossible for the Israelites to be perfect in their pursuit of following these guidelines and laws. And in a nutshell, God's way of making atonement for the sin of the people was to have the priests lay their hands on the head of a lamb, one with no defect or blemishes, perfect animal which symbolizes the transference of the sin of the people to the lamb. Now this lamb would then be killed and the priest would spill the blood onto the altar. God wanted his people to understand the gravity of their sin and that it required a sacrifice for atonement or payment. And although this might seem weird to us, God is sovereign. And this is how we chose to deal with the sin of Israel at that time. Now in the New Testament, we see that Jesus also known as the Lamb of God. He is the perfect, without blemish Lamb that was slain once and for all, for all of mankind. This was so that sin could be forgiven. And when we choose to follow Jesus, to make him Lord of our lives, then we're redeemed or bought back from our enslavement to sin. The debt we owe has been paid and we're adopted into the family of God for all of eternity. The blood of Jesus was literally spilled so that we could be redeemed from our sin. So although this is a gruesome scenario, it's also a beautiful thing. It's so beautiful that no one has to stay lost. So let's get back to Isaiah. <clears throat> now remember that this was written uh, 700 years before the birth of Christ, starting with verse 1. 
Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. One might expect the Savior of the world to be regal and powerful and king-like in the earthly sense. The people of Israel were expecting a political king to save their nation from being oppressed by other nations. And they were not experiencing, expecting to see a carpenter born in a stable to save them from themselves. Verse 3. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, this is talking about Jesus here, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't care. Yet it was our weakness that he carried. It was our sorrows that weighted him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly. Yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied and because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. Jesus took your sins. I mean, I want you to think about yourself personally. Think about you right now. This was for you. He took your sins upon himself, just like that lamb. He took your sins and paid the ultimate price for them. And although his death on a cross was a, a one-time thing, once and for all, there was much suffering. And I mean unimaginable suffering that led up to his excruciating, drawn out, gruesome death. And we always 
kind of think of it as one and done. Thanks, Jesus. Yet he's called the suffering servant because he suffered greatly on our behalf. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet never complained. I mean, we get our feelings hurt and we can't wait to run and tell someone about it. Jesus understands our hurt, mistreatment, rejection, being overlooked, being unjustly criticized and misunderstood. He understands because he experienced it all. He was despised and rejected, and he experienced the deepest grief possible. He did it all as a sinless, perfect sacrifice. And yet humanity, that's us, we turn our backs on him. We look the other way. We forget what he endured on our behalf. And we live out our lives as if our rejection of him means nothing. And by rejection, I mean the whole spectrum. You know, from rejecting a relationship with Jesus at all, to having a relationship with him and still not putting him first above all else. You know, I, I cannot understand the magnitude of his suffering. Which honestly, sometimes makes me choose not to think about it. It's unpleasant, it's uncomfortable. I would much rather ponder the manger scene. But today, let's think about his suffering. Although Jesus suffered long before the Garden of Gethsemane, for the sake of time, we're going to start at the beginning of the end of Jesus' life on earth. You know, the religious leaders were out to get Jesus. They wanted him dead. And Jesus knows that the time has come. And we enter into the story at the Garden of Gethsemane where this is where Jesus wrestled with God as he contemplated what he knew he had come for. Jesus is with his closest friends, the disciples, and it's late, and they're tired, and Jesus goes off to pray. He asks the disciples, watch and pray while he talks with his father. And he even shares with them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And they fall asleep. All alone, Jesus cries out to the Father, knowing what is about to happen. He even asked God to remove this cup of suffering from him. He fell to the ground as blood dripped from his brow. And this happens when a body is un under extreme duress. Capillaries burst and it mixes with sweat and you can actually sweat blood. And his soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Can we do this another way? Yet, in his faithfulness to his Father, he declares, not my will, but yours be done. Then one of his own, Judas, betrays him with a kiss, no less. 
And he's arrested, Jesus is arrested, and he's falsely accused, unfairly tried, sentenced to death by crucifixion. Jesus would be humiliated as he's stripped naked and publicly exposed. Thorns one and a half, maybe two inches in length, are fashioned for a crown to be pressed into his flesh as he's mocked, being called the king of the Jews. And then the beating begins, and he's whipped. Most likely with a Roman instrument, a short-handled implement with multiple leather strips embedded with bits of bone and iron, tearing the exposed flesh of his back again and again and again. And his face is beaten with a hand that bears a signet ring, but you would never know it because he's beaten beyond recognition. Clubs to his head bury the thorns deeper into his scalp. And Isaiah implies that his beard is torn out from his face. Weak and suffering, he is forced to carry the roughly 100-pound crossbeam 650 yards down what was known as the way of suffering to Golgotha where he will be crucified on the cross. Collapsing to the ground, the soldiers stretch out his arms across the beam and seven-inch nails are driven into his hands and feet and with his raw flesh scraping against the rough wood, that cross is raised. And the only way for breath to enter his lungs is for him to raise himself up by pressing down on his nailed wrist and feet. And eventually his shoulders will dislocate and his legs will give out. And breathing will be impossible. It could take days for him to die. And under the heat of the day, as Jesus is naked and exposed, his creation mocks their creator. <laughs> they spit and they taunt and they insult. This is not just physical suffering, but suffering in every conceivable way, physical, emotional, and spiritual. The true suffering, the most painful part, is when the one who never sinned, the perfect sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, the Holy One, becomes everything vile and filthy and unholy and demonic. And he experiences the weight of every sin that ever has or will be committed within his holy self. Jesus must experience the separation from God that sin creates. Otherwise, he couldn't claim to have experienced all that we have experienced. He could not have been the sacrifice. He's offered wine mixed with myrrh to ease the discomfort, but Jesus rejects it. He must be fully aware of this experience. Nothing to numb or dull the discomfort. 
discomfort. What an utterly insufficient word for what we're talking about. Jesus finished what he came to do as he commits his spirit to God. It is finished, he declares. And the prophet Isaiah prophesied that this would all occur approximately 700 years before Jesus was born. He declared that an innocent child born of a virgin would enter and endure on our behalf. No one cared that Jesus died without descendants. I mean, remember, that was a huge deal in biblical times. No one cared that Jesus was cut down in his prime. Jesus had done no wrong, yet he was crucified like a criminal. Most likely on a pile of other criminals. But Isaiah predicts the actual burial of Jesus in a rich man's grave, which is exactly what happens. When Joseph of Arimathea, Arimathea, a prominent and wealthy man, provides a newly hewn tomb for which to bury Jesus' body. It's funny. Pathetic, really. Including myself here. That we're so concerned with Jesus understanding what we experience when we could never come close to understanding what he experienced for us. His suffering was for all of mankind, for all of eternity. His death on the cross and rising again three days later is what sets Christianity apart from all other religions. The ability to have a relationship rather than to just practice religion is what sets Christianity apart from all other belief systems. And that is possible because Jesus chose to be our suffering servant and sacrificial lamb. So when we envision the wise men giving Jesus myrrh, the substance used to embalm the dead, we can see the foreshadowing of what was to come. The lamb of God would be slain for the sins of the world. And this is what Jesus declares in Luke 9, 22 and 23. The Son of Man must suffer many terrible things. He said he will be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He will be killed, but on the third day he will rise again from the dead. And then he says, if anyone would come after me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must take up his cross daily and follow me. He didn't say just say a little prayer and then live your life as usual. What Jesus said was, if you want to be my disciple, you're going to have to deny yourself. It's not about you. It's about me. And then he says, you're going to have to take up your cross, which means to die to yourself. Following Jesus is not an add-on to our current life. It's not a hobby that we engage in uh, when time permits. It's, it's not just something that we celebrate at Christmas when we put up the Christmas lights in the manger scene. When we consciously, prayerfully consider what the suffering servant means, what Jesus endured for each one of us, taking the punishment for our, our lust, taking the, the punishment for your lustfulness and mine, for your hypocrisy and mine, 
our judgmental spirits, our pride and our greed and our anger and our unforgiving and wicked hearts, when we are acutely aware of the suffering that it costs, it overwhelms and takes over your life. I don't follow Jesus because it makes me a better person, although it does. I don't follow Jesus because he gives me all the strength and endurance and grace that I need. Although he does. And I don't follow him because he gives me something to do on any given Sunday. I follow him because of who he is and what he's done for me. No one compares to Jesus. His name is above every other name. He deserves our praise and our honor. And we worship Jesus for who he is, for his love, for his mercy and his grace. And I am so grateful for his patience as he waits for every person to come to him. I mean, after all, he waited for me. I am eternally grateful for the fact that Jesus sees me through the eyes of grace and not through the eyes that see what I deserve. I'm grateful that he sees me through the eyes of what he has already paid and not what I currently owe. And for that, I praise him. I am thankful that I can be in a state of praise and worship in every situation, every circumstance, every emotion, every moment. I can posture myself to set my eyes on Jesus and say yes and amen to his desire for my life. The Bible says to pray without ceasing, and I believe this includes the prayer of praise and worship. Praise and worship without seeking because of what Jesus has done for you. So as we look at our manger scenes today, let's look deeper, much deeper than a baby born in a manger. Let's look at why that baby was born in the first place. Why he was here on earth. And what our salvation cost him. Let our contemplation of his birth Bring us to continual, conscious, constant worship of our suffering servant. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you. Those words seem so trite but we mean it with all that we can muster. Thank you for the joy that you bring us through your sacrifice that we have the joy of the Lord within us because of you. And so God, help us to understand you more, to seek you deeper, to be willing to see and listen we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all of the people said, amen. Thank you for joining us today. Let me encourage you to download the discussion guide by selecting Watch from the top menu of our website. 
Working through those questions alone or with others will help the truth of God's Word find its place in your life. Please reach out if you have any questions or want help on your spiritual journey. My email address is on the screen, or you can call the church during the week. Faithful people like you make this ministry possible. People who believe in what God is doing through Dayspring, who have experienced God's work in and through their own lives and been changed in the process. If you are just checking us out today, please know that we don't expect you to give anything to support Dayspring. That is the responsibility of our Dayspringers. We are simply excited to play a small part as God does His perfect work in you today. For those of you who would like to start giving, we have three easy ways for you to get us your gift. Please see the online giving section of our website or text GIVE to the number on your screen or mail us a check at the address you'll find on our website. And one more thing, thank you for liking and sharing and following Dayspring on whatever platform you connect with us. Thank you for rating us where that is appropriate. Even more, thank you for sharing our services with your friends and family. God uses you to plant seeds in other people's lives, so keep sowing. And if this service was a blessing to you, it'll probably be a blessing to someone else too. Until we meet again, may you experience great joy in the presence of Jesus this holiday season.